And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's Thursday, second best day of the week. That also means that Michael Leibowitz is going to be here today. So we've got to talk about a few things uh, relating to the markets. And today's actual topic is about stock buybacks. Interestingly enough, stock buybacks are continuing to be um, on a record pace. So far this year, buybacks are on a record pace if they keep it up where they're going. They're, they're all, they've almost set a new record of buybacks already, but the announcements are on pace to set a new all-time record for stock buybacks. And once that you back out the institutional selling of stocks, which has been going on, corporate share buybacks make up almost 100% of the net purchases of stocks this year. So again, it's very important, and this is why we've talked about recently that there's this big performance gap between large cap stocks and small and mid cap stocks uh, over time. And that's because small and mid cap companies can't commit to the level of buybacks that large caps can. They just simply don't have the cash coffers for it. So again, you know, one of the underlying pinnings of this market that has been and really since 2011. So this really started mostly coming out of the financial crisis where these, this acceleration of buybacks has taken off. And they've made up about 40% of the net return of the market since 2011-2012. So again, it's a very important impact. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about Apple, its buybacks, and, and what does that mean? And exactly what are you getting for your money, so to speak, in terms of those buybacks? So it's going to be an interesting conversation. We'll go through that this morning with Michael. Also, of course, uh, today we've got several Fed speakers. We also have the personal consumption expenditures report out this morning. So that's going to be the latest inflation report that the Fed's going to have to weigh in terms of their decision to potentially cut rates or not. This is and this is the big debate. So, you know, as we kind of look forward over the next couple of months, again, you know, we still have some risk in the markets, as we've talked about here recently. Markets are are very extended, been running well above long term means. And, you know, as we talked about uh, just previously, um, in the daily market commentary, the S&P now trades at a very large deviation from its 200-day moving average. The only times previously in, in the last couple of years that it's had such a big deviation it has preceded bigger corrections. And so, you know, we've talked about this issue of correction here for a while. Um, we're now into that time frame, uh, looking at historical trends of the markets on average in presidential election years. Markets tend to have a fairly weak March-April period, um, but again, it's not significant. So you get a little bit of a sell-off in March and April. The bigger decline tends to come in the summer months going into the actual election. This is because in, in Wall Street doesn't know what the outcome of the election is going to be, what policy changes there might be, what might happen. And well, of course, with such a contentious election this year, um, the risk of social unrest, et cetera, is probably a lot larger than normal. So again, that may give Wall Street even more incentive to reduce risk this summer heading into the election. So while the markets and absolutely, and we'll go through this in a moment when we talk about uh, um, you know, what, what you need to know before the bell, the market's doing fine. And there's certainly nothing right now to warrant being overly cautious. But again, this is just kind of where things are. Now, um, 
Outside of that, also, we've had a revision to GDP yesterday, came in a little bit weaker than expected. Uh, so it was revised down uh, a smidge yesterday. So still coming in over 3%, but it did have a bit of a negative revision. Consumer confidence also revised down rather sharply in its latest report, which is interesting because, again, the previous months of consumer sentiment were also revised down again. So, you know, it's always interesting with consumer confidence because that's an actual survey. It's like, how do you feel about things? And people go, well, I, I feel this way. And then so they're going back and what people are saying, they didn't really feel that way last month and things have changed. So, you know, but it is what it is. Look, it's just the data. But the interesting thing is about that is that while their confidence in the economy has weakened, their confidence in rising stock prices are almost at a record. So again, they are very confident that over the next year, asset prices are going to be higher. And that's really a, a, an interesting dichotomy relative to their expectation of the economy, considering that the economy is where the earnings and revenue growth comes from for stocks. But see, this is just kind of the disconnect that we get as investors as we get, you know, kind of into the financial markets and markets are doing these kind of exceptionally bullish things. It tends to permeate into our outlooks. And it's like, okay, I have an outlook about the market that has absolutely nothing to do with the economy because the market's going to do whatever it's going to do all by itself. That's kind of how this works. But again, that's not the way ultimately that it works out. And again, very high levels of confidence about future returns in stocks by retail investors has often timed out with a near-term peak in the market. So again, it's just, as always, investors tend to do exactly the opposite of what they should do. So let's talk a little bit about before the bell this morning. Again, uh, markets sold off a bit yesterday and, and very interesting. I mean, we just remain very, and, and we talked about this just the other day, just we have a very, very narrow trend channel that the market is trading in right now. And like clockwork, we get to the top of the channel, we sell off to the bottom of the channel. We're approaching the bottom of that channel here, which is right around the 20-day moving average. And again, the market just has, has just kind of stair-stepped higher here ever since November. And it's just been, it's just been a very steady, non-volatile decline. And you can really see this if you take a look at the MACD indicator, which is kind of this indicator that normally gives you kind of good buy and sell indications. It's been a very unusual type of position for the MACD right now because it just continues to trade flatline. And it's at an overbought level, uh, currently well, the deviation of the moving average is well above normal. And again, just trading sideways. And, and, the, and as the, it just trades sideways here, the market just kind of keeps grinding itself higher. Um, we do continue to have that negative divergence in momentum, which is the only kind of real uh, concern at this point. Volatility remain, as we talked about yesterday, the volatility index remains historically at very low levels. So, and so this is also something Mike and I will talk about this morning, but you know, there is the setup here that this type of, of structure in the underlying market is not real healthy. So you're, this, this can't, in other words, this can't continue indefinitely like this. This is going to lead to a reversion in stock prices. The only question is when, but as I noted just a little bit ago, this deviation to the 200 day moving average is getting rather extreme. And so if we go back historically and kind of look at other periods where we've had such an extreme deviation in the 200-day moving average from this market, 
we can see that this normally kind of aligns where you have previous corrections in the markets as well. And again, we don't get these big, these big deviations from the 200-day moving average very often, but when they occur, they, they always tend to lead to a reversion back to the 200-day moving average. And, and so again, this, this isn't surprising that this occurs. This is just how this kind of bullish attitude works when you get a lot of very bullish sentiment in the markets. That's what happens is you get these kind of big deviations in the markets that are ultimately not sustainable and you will eventually get a correction. Again, doesn't mean tomorrow, but the odds of this market continuing just to advance higher here and continuing to deviate further from that 200 day moving average is becoming much less likely over the course of the next few months, and particularly before we get into the election. So again, just, you know, kind of just going back to basic risk management protocols just something to pay attention to. As I said, you know, this kind of this issue where the MACDs just kind of stuck at a very elevated level with a deteriorating rate of momentum is also concerning. It don't, normally doesn't happen. You get normally get these kind of deviations from the, you know, the kind of the, the market, but they don't tend to last as long as this one has. So this has been a very extended advance. We're getting closer to the end of that advance. So again, good time to take profits, rebalance risk, think about, you know, kind of alternative structures over the next month or so. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back from the break, we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz to talk about buybacks. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it is Thursday. It is also February the 29th. Of course, uh, I highly recommend not doing anything on the 30th and the 31st. Just, you know, wait till March at this point. So a um, couple of things. I, I want to kind of pick up on the market here first. We'll, we'll, we're gonna get, we'll get to buybacks here in a, a few minutes because, you know, that's a, another important driver here of what's going on. But I did want to talk a little bit about, you know, current levels of, you know, since we just talked about the market itself and this kind of this very low volatility advance that we've got going on right now. Um, I don't want to say it's abnormal because we've certainly had periods where we've had very low extended levels of volatility and that happens accordingly. Um, <laughs> what are you doing? You had a monitor on on your computer, and I was getting feedback in oh, it, and I, I was needed like, to make sure <laughs> that when I bring Michael's audio up, gotcha. I don't have you talking to yourself. I gotcha. Okay. So I'm just, I'm, just checking. I'm you just know, taking care of you. You're over here messing with my stuff. And if you hadn't said anything, nobody would have <laughs> known because I was out of the camera shot. <laughs> I know, but you're bugging me, breaking my train of thought over <laughs> taking here. Taking care of you, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love you, dude. Anyway, <laughs> thanks. appreciate it. I'm going to sneak over to your house on the 30th. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> so, um, all right. Anyway, uh, so th we've, we've had these periods of low volatility before in the markets. And, and, you know, again, volatility in terms of kind of how you want to measure it, but volatility in general has stepped down, so to speak. In other words, we've been, you know, having a lower level of volatility. So we've gotten to this very complacent market structure, even really um, during 
previous kind of crisis related events in, in the markets over the last couple of years, we've had we've had small increases in volatility, but nothing to the degree that you're expecting, especially example 2022. So during that decline in 2022, yes, volatility went up, but it never reached levels like we saw during the financial crisis or during, you know, kind of bigger correctionary markets. So we've had this this very high level of complacency. You know, and all during 2022 is always interesting because even though the market was going down, there was this ongoing demand for, you know, When's the bottom? I, I got to get in. I don't want to miss the bottom of this correction. I've been waiting for this since 2008, right? So finally, the markets are correcting. I got to get in. And so with that, with that fear of missing out prevalent in the markets, even during the decline, it never allowed volatility to, to spike um, up to, to what you would expect during correctionary periods. So again, just this very complacent market that we've gotten into. And Mike, I mean, we've talked, you and I have talked about this before. You've kind of written about it lately. You know, what's going on with volatility is is a function of, of what happens is happening in the options market. And, and right now there's no fear of a correction or a crash of any size at this moment. Right. Think about it. Volatility as insurance and it's portfolio insurance. And when there's demand for insurance, the price of insurance goes up. And when there's no demand, the price goes down. But on top of that, a lot of traders, some investors short volatility. So they're betting that the market will stay complacent and they can essentially make some decent passive income as long as the market, as long as the volatility stays complacent. So on top of a lack of demand, what you also get in complacent markets is more and more short bets on volatility that push it down further. So Right now, we're at some of the lowest levels we've ever seen. But in our commentary uh, this morning, we point out something very interesting. Volatility, because volatility is, in, you know, again, like insurance, it tends to be negatively correlated with the stock market. When the stock market is rising, like it has been very gradually and at a nice pace, very predictably, no one wants insurance volatility goes down. So stocks up, volatility down. Conversely, when we start to see signs of trouble, people bid for volatility, its price goes up. And recently, over the last two months or so, we've seen volatility still at extremely low levels, but inching, trending higher, albeit at a kind of a snail's pace. At the same time, the stock market has been trending higher as well. And that is to have the two become correlated in other words, they're moving in the same direction, is rare. Um, and we point out in our daily commentary, I think it's happened 11 times since 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, five of the times such a positive correlation has called the, the peak of the market. F three or four of them, they were just false alarms. And mm -hmm. a couple were a little bit early calling the peak of the market. So you know, volatility is very low, but it's something we should always keep an eye on, especially how it's moving compared to the market, because what it's kind of telling you today is that there may be an underlying fear <clears throat> from from some some investors that the market's getting ready to peak at some point. They're starting to buy insurance while it's cheap. It's like buying insurance for your property in Texas or Florida 
buying house insurance in January versus waiting for August when it's storm season. Right. So, you know, that's kind of the state of the volatility market. Right now, there's nothing overly concerning, but just the fact that they're moving together is just another yeah. signal that the market's getting a little lofty here. Right. I think there's an important point, though, that that we need to underscore here, because, uh, again, if you kind of look at the data you just put out there, like five times it was the peak of the market, four times it was a false alarm, you know, five times it was, you know, close to a peak, you know, whatever the numbers worked out to be. But so, you know, five out of 11 times it was a, you know, a precise indicator of a correction in the market. So it, just from that percentage, you go, well, that's not a very good indicator to watch. Right. But this is one of the the issues we've talked about before about technical analysis <clears throat> and and the mistake that investors make with technical analysis and and looking at an indicator and go, well, it didn't work last time, so it, it must not work anymore. You know, technical indicators of, of any type, and, and this and we can put the volatility index into the technical indicator category. Um, but technical indicators are not necessarily always precisely accurate like every time this crosses you're going to have a correction sometimes that doesn't work out that way but what they do tell you is is they they tell you that you're probably within the range of time that a correction or a buying opportunity i mean if you know if we're talking about the inverse of this um, as well with technical indicators when they're extremely oversold, you're probably within the realm of the range of beginning of a rally. And again, we can go back to October of last year as a good example. Indicators were very negative. Markets were going down. Everybody just assumed, and, and, and the general consensus was this market is just going to keep going down. Uh, we were writing articles at that point talking about this rally that would start in November. We laid out all the reasons why we'd have a rally starting in November. But, you know, we got a lot of pushback on that. <laughs> and, of course, we've had the rally since November. And same thing here is that these indicators are never perfect. And you should never try to manage your portfolio on an indicator, especially one indicator, and say, oh, well, every time this happens, you know, I'm going to be short the market. Because odds are, more often than not, you're going to be either – wrong early or wrong a little bit late but it's going to be rare that you're just exactly right and that's and and, and so these are tools to help manage risk but they shouldn't be an all-in all-out bet on one particular indication right and, and look they never are all in unison either so in simplevisor we have our absolute and relative technical scores We've never hit a score of 1.0 or minus 1.0, which would tell you that all the we use, I think, 12 or 13 mm -hmm. indicators that they've all kind of maxed out as overbought or oversold. So there's always some indicator, even in the most bearish or bullish market, that's telling you otherwise. That's saying something's changing here. We're not as bullish as we were. We're not as bearish. So, you know, pay attention to those and see if the number of contra indicators are increasing or decreasing. But but like you said, Lance, there's if there were a crystal ball, we'd be very wealthy right now and probably not be doing this. We'd be sleeping right now. Exactly. Be on a beach somewhere. You know, that's that's kind of always interesting. You know, I always I always love these, you know, I get these these uh, you know, emails all the time, you know, with some promise of, oh, this you know, this guy has, you know, just he's got the secret to the market and he's going to make he'll make you millions of dollars and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, and just, you know, follow his method. Right. Well, if he's got this perfect method, if I had a perfect method for managing money <laughs> and I never lost money, I wouldn't be doing it for other people. I would just be doing it myself on my beach somewhere. Right. And I don't right, my, be I own my own beach. <laughs> 
<laughs> so. Right. And and you wouldn't just do it just just because it's, it's for you. You would do it because the more people that know it, it would eventually get ruined. Correct. So <laughs> so you definitely wouldn't share the perfect method. Right. Which doesn't exist. But yeah, well, that, I think that's that's and that's such a great point, because. If and the the more that people understand a particular you know market arbitrage whatever it is, um, you know they always get emails like, well, why don't you just sell you know the stocks right be, you know buy the stocks right before the dividend date and sell them right after the dividend date, just collect the dividends. Everybody knows that, so it's all arbitraged out of the market. And so the, you know Wall Street's very smart, and if everybody's doing one thing, there's going to be a whole group of people on the other side of that trade on Wall Street arbitraging that out, saying, "Okay, I know what this is. I know what this is, and I'm gonna and and I figured out a way to take advantage of it." And so this is why the more to your point, Mike, this is why the more people that know about something, and a lot of these you know things that run around the internet saying, "Oh, this method always works," Wall Street will arbitrage that out very quickly. Of course. Of course, any easy money is going to be rooted out of the market quickly <laughs> exactly. and kept kept on Wall Street. Exactly. That, All right. Don't let that escape. Uh, speaking of keeping money on Wall Street, let's uh, talk about Apple and buybacks. When we come back from the break. Don't go away. Life is an illusion. Can't you see that love is everywhere? Step into the confusion. Can't you hear the sound that's in the air? investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so we're gonna talk a little bit about buybacks and you know are they actually good for the shareholder and and again you know this is something that has been going on at an increasing rate over the course of the last really kind of eight, nine, ten years in particular. Um, you know, if you take a look at this year already, we are running at $207 billion worth of buybacks. That's slightly lower than 337% buybacks last year, but we're on pace to set a record this year. So again, you know, this is only February. <laughs> yeah, there's an extra day in February, but this is only February and we're already almost uh, at, at a record, and again, already at levels that are equivalent to the previous peaks in 2020 and 2021, kind of during the whole mania of the market. Um, also, um, I'll switch to one more chart here, Brent. Um, if you, and this is what I was talking about this morning, is that if you take a look at the net purchases of buybacks, right? So if you take a look at stock, uh, who's buying stocks and who's selling, institutions have been selling stocks. So stock, stock ownership by institutions is down about 6 7%. So if you take the corporate share buybacks who have been buying stocks, that's up almost 15 So if you, you know, if you subtract out the difference between the corporate share buybacks, the, the institutional selling from the foreign and the retail buyer, Basically, 100% of the net purchases of stocks going back to 2009 has all come from corporations. And, and so this is, of course, this has been 
one of the reasons why the market just inherently just moves higher over time. Uh, you know, kind of has this incessant underneath this incessant kind of bid underneath stocks as corporations continue to come in and keep buying these stocks. Now, the SEC did an investigation that said, okay, well, who really benefits from all these shares and, and all these share buybacks? Because one of the, the memes of the market is, well, when companies do share buybacks, that's returning capital shareholders. Absolutely not true. You didn't get a check in the mail. If you want to get, if you want to sell your shares of stock, you don't have to wait for the company to buy shares back. You can sell them any day of the week, just on the open market. What the SEC found was is obvious is that it's the insiders of the company that are selling their shares back to the company to redeem stock option programs and those type of things. And so this is why we continue to see this acceleration of, of you know, executive wealth, where these companies do large buybacks. And, and continue to put a bid under the stocks. Because, of course, it also helps improve earnings per share. If I reduce the number of shares outstanding, it improves my EPS. And this is particularly important for companies that are having difficulty, and this is the key sentence here, growing revenue. So, Mike, you just did an article on uh, Wednesday. It's on the website now talking about share buybacks, and particularly as it relates to Apple. Um you know, this is this is kind of one of the interesting things. You know, Apple continues to to have this bid in the market, so to speak, and yet, you know, revenue growth has not been phenomenal. You know, so how do you kind of equate the two? Right. So we I wanted we've done a lot of articles on buyback. So this time I thought I would take a slightly different approach and look at it through Apple stock. Because Apple, what do we think of Apple as a growth technology company, right? It, it certainly is a technology company, but it's really not a growth company. If you look at its earnings, not earnings per share, but earnings, they're growing at the same pace as the market. They're, they're not growth, which should be decently above the market. You know, like we, we think of NVIDIA as hyper growth or Microsoft as good growth. They're growing at a rel much relatively quicker than the market. So why are investors paying a high premium for Apple, right? They should be paying the same price to earnings ratio or other whatever, you know, pick your ratio that you like, similar to the market because its cash flows are similar to the market. Well, that's where stock buybacks come in handy. And, you know, I think it's important to realize that what's the price of the stock? And if we say Apple, someone will say, oh, it's a buck 80 a share. And that's correct. That's how we quote stocks. But the real answer is Apple's worth, uh, what are they, 2.8 trillion now, mm -hmm. 2.9 yep. trillion. That's the market cap. If you wanted to buy the company and buy all the shares back, it's gonna cost you about 2.8, 2.9 trillion. So hypothetically, Apple comes out today and says they're gonna buy back every single share except for one. There'll be one share outstanding. Well, the value of, of Apple hasn't really changed. It's still worth 2.9 trillion, but now there's only one share outstanding. Whoever owns that share has 2.9 trillion. You know, owns <laughs> 2.9 trillion. So that just shows you how buybacks increase the price per share, not the value of the company. Uh, but as investors, all we care about is the price per share rising because that's what we own. Um, so it's interesting when you look at Apple started buying back shares in 2013 and they've done it at a pretty strong pace. And, you know, that's one reason Warren Buffett likes the company. Mm -hmm. It's not their growth. Um, 
It's the fact that they're buying back shares, giving money essentially indirectly back to shareholders. If you look at their earnings per share, as they are stated today versus had they not done any buybacks, it's almost double. So if we assume the price to earnings would be the same today, had they not bought back any shares, its stock price would be half the approximately half the price it is today. So what you're buying, what you're betting on with Apple is that they can continue to do share buybacks because their earnings per share growth is more than the market. So so an analysis of Apple, you're looking at cash flow, you're looking at cash on hand, you're looking at the means that they have to continue buying back shares. And a warning sign for Apple would be something that says we're not going to buy back as many shares or some regulation from the government that says we're going to tax buybacks or we can't borrow money anymore for whatever reason to help fund buybacks. So, you know, every every company is different. But when you're looking at some of these large cap stocks, especially those that are not growing as fastly as as fast as you might think, it's important to kind of study the buyback aspect of it and ask yourself, can they continue? Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, because even Warren Buffett in his latest annual letter, he addressed issues of buybacks because, again, you know, even he's been buying back shares of, of Berkshire Hathaway, has $160 billion in cash and nothing to do with it. Uh, again, and, and this is kind of the subject of this weekend's newsletter, he, you know, he specifically says, you know, there's there's nothing out there I can buy that'll move the needle that's reasonably, and everybody forgot this in the media, they just said, oh, there's nothing out there I can buy that'll reasonably move the needle. But they forgot the last part of a sentence, which is that is reasonably priced. And your know, valuations are always important for making acquisitions. And he even specifically mentions buybacks. He says buybacks have to be done at a reasonable price. You know, and, and unfortunately, companies like Apple and others, they're they're just buying back stock in order to keep the stock price elevated. And that's going to have a long term detrimental effect of using that capital that could have been used for. Oh, you know, maybe developing, you know, AI tools so they can get involved in the AI race or whatever it is. They've been using that money to buy shares back with, and they're doing that at a non-reasonable price, which will potentially haunt them in the future. Right, right. That's that's the kind of takeaway here with Apple is that their money is being spent not on innovation, not on R&D, but on propping up its its share price. They just got out of the electric car business. You know, we can debate all day whether that was a good thing or bad thing. But what if in 2013 they decide, you know what, we're not buying back shares. We're going to put all that money towards electric cars and we're going to be a market leader mm -hmm. and hypothetically say that them, along with Tesla, were the were the market leaders. Tesla is a six, seven hundred billion dollar company right now. Apple could have, you know, in theory, had they pushed hard and had they been as successful as Tesla. And that's a lot of ifs. And I get it. But they could have an extra three, four hundred billion in market cap from the electric business right now. Right. But they didn't. They haven't innovated. They've changed the color on their phones. They've made the cameras a little better. Um, so, you know, you, you have to look at the thing holistically. What are you giving up? You're giving up innovation, R&D and future sales. What you're getting is a propped up earnings per share and, you know, hopefully a higher price valuation and price that follows it. 
Yeah, you know, it is interesting. You know, Detroit warned Apple about making, you know, electric vehicles, and Apple kind of had to learn about it the hard way. And again, we're seeing already across the entire kind of EV platform companies, you know, Ford, others are starting to, you know, scale back on their EV production because they're just not selling at the expected rate, right? Everybody thought that this was going to be the game changer and everybody was going to own electric vehicles and that hasn't quite had the adoption that everybody thought there was going to be. So now we're seeing these companies scale back. Other companies are having a, a much more difficult time, especially kind of young startups are having a difficult time with it. Um, but it's interesting now that, you know, the iPhone maker, and this is an article from the Wall Street Journal this morning, the iPhone maker is expected to unveil AI tools at its June developer conference after it lagged behind tech peers that have a clearer AI strategy. So, again, kind of interesting, yeah, getting out of the electric vehicle business and the next new shiny object is now AI. So we're going to have to go do that. Just hopefully they won't make a Google mistake <laughs> with their AI. And, uh, you know, Google's Gemini you know, debacle has, has haunted Google stock the last couple of days. Um, so hopefully, and, and Apple tends to, look, I, you know, one thing about Apple and is that they don't build new mousetraps. They build better mousetraps. You know, they didn't, they didn't invent the, the smartphone, but they built a much better one. And so hopefully what Apple will do is learn the lessons that everybody else is making their mistakes on and build a much better mousetrap when it comes to AI. And that's been, you know, Apple's really kind of bread and butter over the last couple of decades. And, but Lance, we all suffer because they're not boosting productivity of our economy. Well, that's Instead, a, that's a whole different conversation we can have after the break. So don't go away. Okay. Come right back with Michael Leibowitz. Also, want to talk a little bit about the Fed's preferred inflation gauge PCE. That's out this morning at seven thirty. Uh, so we'll talk about that as well. Don't go away. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, yeah, just as we were wrapping up the, our conversation on stock buybacks and, you know, Apple trying to figure out its next growth mode. And again, this is this is the big story, right? I mean, so Apple's been buying back a lot of shares. Revenue growth has not been really supportive of that. If you take a look at every valuation metric of Apple, whether it's uh, EBITDA or price to sales, price to revenue, price to cash flow, whatever, they're all in the 85 to 95% valuation range. They're all at the very upper end of the range. So the earnings growth, the revenue growth for Apple has been stagnating over the last you know few years. And this is just simply because, like Mike said, you know, innovation hasn't been their their strong suit. It's been, hey, here's a new phone. We're going to charge you, you know, 500 bucks more than last year, and it's got a, a neat new cover on it, right? But you know, if you really think about the Apple iPhone as an example, you know, uh, you know, pod, you know, the 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 iPods or whatever it is. You know, all their products are great, but there's not been new, really big new innovation over the last several years. So they're looking for the next big innovation trick. So they thought it might be cars. 
That turned out to not to be the case. So now they're going to turn their attention to AI, which is probably a, a much better decision um, in terms of, in, of investing capital, R&D, et cetera, and trying to build a better mousetrap when it comes to artificial intelligence. But again, as, as Mike pointed out, you know, there's a very dark side to that. You know, economists will come out and say AI is great because it'll increase productivity. The, what Mike was alluding to, and I'll let him finish this conversation, is that there's a dark side to increases in productivity. Mike? Yeah. So I was kind of going in general, right? Productivity growth is really what drives the economy. It's, it's a combination of productivity growth and demographics. And demographics in this country are still contributing to economic growth, but less so every day, uh, you know, as our population grows slower and slower and eventually could decline. And, and it has to do with the age of the population as well. But productivity growth is the big one. And that's what made America the economic powerhouse it is. We've, our capitalism incentivizes productivity. The more productive you can be, the more profits you can make. So what share buybacks do is take away from that incentive, right? Mm -hmm. Cook is deemed a genius for what he's done at Apple, but what he's really done is boosting the share price. That's what he's done. He's innovated. He, like you said, he's made some great products, but they're they're you know he's piggybacking on everyone else. They haven't really well, invented. See, to be fair, it was Steve Jobs that fair. that did fair. the the innovation. Tim fair, Cook has fair. been, you know, the, the ship was already out in the ocean, and Tim Cook took over navigation, and he's done a good job navigating. But under his tenure, what you know, big innovation has there really been? Right, right. And look, I own an Apple. I have Apple products. Loser. I like the products. I think they're great, but but they're not innovating. You know, again, let, let's maybe this will hit home a little better. Let's pick a drug company, Johnson and Johnson, and let's just say, and I don't know if they're buying back shares, but let's say they've spent a billion dollars a year buying back shares for the last 10 years. That's $10 billion that they've basically thrown out the window, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what if they had put $10 billion towards cancer research? Might they have found a cure for some forms of cancer or some other diseases that would make people more productive? They can work more. They're not in a hot, they're in a hospital less. So, you know, when they're buying back shares, they're not innovating. They're not, it's not going to R&D. And I think that's, that doesn't, it it's not, has nothing to do with the stock itself. It has to do with the whole economy and the growth rate of the economy. And that's one of many reasons. That's not the you know the yeah. only reason why productivity growth in this country is continually slowing down, despite you know new innovations. Yeah, and, 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 and look, that's and, troubling. Yeah, you know another good example is Boeing, which spent you know billions of dollars on buybacks, and we had to bail them out during 2020. Uh, because they didn't have enough cash to keep themselves in business when we shut down the economy, and maybe if they had developed more money, you know, put more money into R and D, their doors wouldn't fall off. So right, right. <laughs> they should have done R and D on doors, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or the planes wouldn't crash. You know, those little things that they kind of matter. But I mean, you know, but yeah, this is you know, this is kind of the interesting thing that you know we're going to deal with. Um, look, we're we're going to run out of time here, so I need to switch gears. Um, Today is the PCE report, which is the you know, which is probably one of the more important inflation gauges. Even though the the media kind of focuses on CPI in particular, it's like oh, here's the CPI report. P 
PPI is also important, the producer price index, but PCE is really important uh, in terms of what the Fed does because they looked at trim. They they really kind of focus on trimmed mean PCE, which is PCE is personal consumption expenditures. Personal consumption expenditures as a whole make up about roughly 70% of the GDP report. So the, the, the change in prices and personal consumption expenditures is kind of important to that. So uh, that report's expected out this morning. Could be a little bit hotter than, you know, kind of, you know, maybe the market's expecting if it kind of follows trend of the CPI and PPI. But, you know, again, you know, anything in particular that you're kind of looking at there or, or that, you know, may worry the Fed a bit? Well, I think the market is worried, right? We had CPI, PPI, and a couple of random type inflation reports that are showing that inflation, you know, characterize it how you want, whether it's sticky or starting to rise a little bit. Uh, so the market is kind of worried about PCE, that it's going to show the same thing, and that's further going to cement the Fed that they're not going to cut rates anytime soon. But, you know, while PCE will be higher than it was last month, it may be below expectations just because everyone has raised those expectations for PCE. Mm -hmm. So the, the market, so even though we may get a hot PCE number, if it's less than expectations, the market, both stock and market, stock and bond markets may do well on it purely because of where it comes in versus expectations. But Again, you know, what what we really focus on with all these inflation numbers is the trend. Where's the trend going? And, it, you know, while the market will hyper focus on these numbers, it's one month, one month of act, one month of activity. You know, we'd like to see three or four months to see where the trend's going and understand how infl how sticky inflation really is. Or is this just kind of a seasonal temporary pause here, you know, as inflation continues to decline. Yeah. And, and and also, too, you know, one thing that we always say is we look at these one specific numbers and then, you know, you know, six months from now or a year from now, we'll revise all this data. And, you know, especially if we happen to at some point, you know, in the next year or so have a recession, um, we'll come back and revise all these numbers and go, oh, yeah, well, actually, things were a lot lower than we thought they were. Because, again, this is a very imperfect calculation, as, as, we've, as you've talked about before on the show. You know, inflation where you live is different than inflation in Texas, and it's different than in California. You know, my age and, and your age is different than a young millennial that's growing up trying to raise kids right now. You know, so inflation is is very very difficult to gauge, and when we're and but yet as investors we're taking these reports as gospel, and then we're looking at the Fed going, well, this report said this. What are you going to do? And this is the problem with where we've gotten into the markets that we're not we're not in you know none of this really should matter because we should be buying companies because of valuations and fundamentals and what the company's doing and and all these type of things. But we have so many artificial influences now stock buybacks and the Federal Reserve and, and what monetary policy is going to do is that we don't even focus on the fundamentals anymore. It's just what is this report going to mean to the Fed's actions? Are they going to cut rates? Are they going to give me more easing and more monetary accommodation or not? And that's not really investing. That's just gambling. But that's where we've gotten to in the markets. Right. And maybe this is a good topic for next week when we talk. But there's so much leverage in the system that we've become so dependent on the Fed to set interest rates, to provide liquidity to the markets, that the Fed has become all-encompassing. And, you know, it, unfortunately, 
it's probably what we should be looking at because if that leverage goes away, there has to be mass selling of financial assets. So the Fed won't let that leverage go away. So they have to continually more or less pump liquidity into the market and manage interest rates very closely. And therefore, we have to kind of hang on every Fed word. And when they tell us that PC inflation is the big indicator that they're watching, well, this morning at 8.30 Eastern time, every, all eyes are going to be on PCE. Mm -hmm. And if it's a tenth of a percent higher or lower, markets are going to jump or fall or whatever they're going to do. Right. It's crazy, but that's the state of kind of the financial markets and the economy as a whole. Yeah, unfortunately. And, and again, you know, you take a look at quarter three GDP growth as an example. It took 830, talking about leverage, took $834 billion in new debt issuance to generate $334 billion worth of growth. You know, right. that's the leverage you're talking about. It just it takes two and a half dollars of debt to create a dollar's worth of economic growth on a quarterly basis. That's not really sustainable. Um, you know, but again, that's where we are right now because of, you know, all these government stimuluses and government spending programs that we've been doing. And again, the, the question I think we have to come back to as investors is, is, A, can we sustain that rate of debt issuance? Can we sustain that rate of monetary interventions? And what happens if you can't? And that's going to be All a right. real question for markets. Right. And I, I think it's the latter. Can we sustain the monetary intervention? Because we can't sustain the debt, you know, if right. we were purely a free market. So how much more can the Fed do? And that's, that's the question we have to grapple with every day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. That's Michael Leibowitz, of course, joining the show uh, this morning. Uh, Anheuser-Busch reporting earnings along with Best Buy, Birkenstock, Dell, Fisker, Hewlett-Packard. So got a few more wrapping up earnings season here, getting through that. Um, but uh, today we've got two Fed speakers. We've got PCE out this morning. So again, uh, this market can do a whole lot of stuff by the end of the day. So we'll talk about it tomorrow. Danny Ratliff, Richard Rosso here in the morning course be sure to get by the website get registered for our weekend newsletter that'll be out this saturday talking about berkshire's dilemma will be in this weekend's newsletter also make sure and like and subscribe to this channel we appreciate your follow you following and subscribing to our channel it helps keep uh, brent employed and he appreciates that so have a great day we'll see you back here tomorrow